Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the greatest and most powerful man that ever lived, and yet, and yet he was the most humble. Scripture teaches us that all we like sheep have gone astray, and yet it is not the power of God, but it is the kindness of God that does what? It leads us to repentance. It leads us home. As great as He is, God is gentle and loving and kind. He's so good to us and we don't deserve His goodness. But alas, He doesn't do it because of us, right? He does this because He is wonderful beyond our understanding. You know, Psalm 145 kind of captures this. As the psalmist sang out, he said, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might and of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy goodness, and they shall sing of thy righteousness. And what will they sing about? The Lord is gracious, he is full of compassion, he's slow to anger. And of great mercy. These are not the things you would praise a mighty king for on the earth. No one's praising Nebuchadnezzar. For he's gracious. And he's merciful. And he's kind. This is not what they would ever praise a king for in the world. These things were seen as weakness. But God has taught us that grace is more powerful than all these other things. For the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all of his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom, and they shall talk of thy power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and his glorious majesty of his kingdom. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all that fall, and he raises up all that be bowed down. 
The eyes of the Lord wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfiest the devourer of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and holy in all of his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all of the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak praise to the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. And Lord, it is your mercy that has called us into this house when we certainly have been rebels against your word. Even this week, Lord, we've sinned. We've been willful. We have looked at the good that you've done to others and resented it, Lord. Lord, change our hearts. Make us like you. Feed us from heaven today and send us out to do good works in this world that we may indeed be a a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for a few moments uh, as I read my text for you from the book of Luke, chapter 15. My sermon today is called The Problem with Our Righteousness. Everybody say that with me. The Problem of Our Righteousness. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over the 90 and nine just persons, which need no repentance. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for being kind to us, for loving us, for saving us, for cleaning up our lives. Lord, our lives without you would be a mess. We would be miserable. And the fruit of our foolishness would plague us day to day. And really, honestly, that even still happens now. But I can't imagine what it would be like without your guiding hand and your powerful touch. Lord, today as we go to your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that we do have a problem with our righteousness. We love it. And as a result, we don't love others and we become proud. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to humility and kindness and love that we indeed might be like those who want to rejoice with all of heaven 
when one sinner repents. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There is definitely a problem with our righteousness. It, it almost sounds like what I'm saying can't be right. You know, what could be the problem with that? What could be the problem with good living? What could be the problem with doing things right? Well, the problem is, uh, is that we can get to where we really, really love it. We really, really like it. We can find ourselves like the man who was praying. Remember, Jesus was talking about him. He's like, oh, Lord, I thank you that I fast once a week. And I thank you that I pay all of my tithes, even of the little tiny things that I garden and And I thank you that I'm not like this man over here and I don't live his life. Now, when I say that prayer, you can all agree that this is not a prayer you want to be caught praying, right? Jesus said that that prayer was a a prayer that when the man went away, he was not justified. But the prayer of the man who stood afar off, who beat his breast and who thought, He wasn't even worthy even to be praying and talking to God that that man did go away justified in his prayer. Now, this is not hyperbole. This is not just, uh, you know, a a concept, you know, where we we need to behave ourselves and and, and not be uh, acting like that. This is a true attitude. And I'm telling you and I'm telling me and God is telling all of us today that this pride that comes from living right, from doing good, from knowing the right way to do things, that this pride is dangerous and it's ungodly. Now, money is not evil, right? Everybody say, money's not evil. But the Bible says that the love of money is the root of what? It's the root of all evil. So you might go, well, if without money we can't buy food, and without the, you know, we can't, how do we live? Jesus didn't say that money was evil, but it's the love of money. You cannot love it and love God. Right? And that what it says? You can't serve two masters. And when it says the love of money, it's talking about your own ability to take care of yourself and to take care of others. That's what money does. Money gives you the ability to give yourself what you want, to answer your own prayers, and really to answer the prayers of other people. Money is a wonderful thing. And if I had lots of money, I could probably help lots of people, and I'd probably help myself a lot, probably hurt myself too. But what I'm saying is, is having it is not a horrible thing, but loving it is. Everybody say, loving it is. And righteousness is the same thing. Having a good life. Being able to say, you know what? Hey, I thank my God that I don't send my kids off to the public school to be taught in those big, scary yellow buses. I'm thankful that they're not sitting in a classroom where they're teaching them that God is dead and that we evolved from, you know, amoebas to apes and all that kind of stuff. I'm so glad that my wife doesn't have to go out and serve some other man, but I take care of her. There's nothing wrong with saying those things are good things, but what happens is, is we can come to love those things more than we love people, and we can come to... Uh, be happier about those things and we can forget who we are. And really, this discourse that Jesus is on in Luke 13, 14, and 15 is a discourse on humility. And what is happening here in Luke 15 where we are is He's setting 
up us, setting us up to help us understand that even our good works, that our obedience of God's word. You see, when the Pharisee prayed, he wasn't thanking God for a bunch of nonsense. He was thanking God for good things. He was thanking God for righteous things. He was thanking God for good living. We look at it as though he was snide and whatever. He was thanking God for his own righteousness. He was righteous. And Jesus even said this. He said, the things that they bid you do, do those and more. Everybody say, do more. It's not the righteousness itself. It is the love of it. It is the love of it that becomes the love of ourselves that's so ugly with God and it be, turns into pride. So who, who wants your righteousness to turn into pride? Not me. But who wants righteousness? I do. In fact, the Bible says that we should hunger and thirst after righteousness like our very food and water. And we should. But when we get it, it's not time for us to love it and to look at it and to be so glad and so, uh, you know, enjoy that we have it so much. But really for us to come before the Lord and go, God, you're good to me. You even give me righteous living. This is your gift to me because if it were up to me, I'd be just doing a bunch of junk. Amen? You see, Jesus here in Luke chapter 15 is still in Jerusalem and he had just uh, dramatically left the house of the chief Pharisee who had invited them there for a Sabbath meal to watch him. Remember where we were last week? He's there at the, at the Pharisee's house and the Pharisee brought him there so he kind of watch him. And Jesus humiliated this man in his own home. And you might go, well, that that doesn't sound nice. Okay, Jesus humbled the man in his own home because he knew the man's heart was wrong. And he brought him there not to hunger and thirst after righteousness, not to do what was right. He brought him there because he wanted to trap Jesus. Okay, and and so there's this man, remember, he heals the man and all that. All right. He had just taken the dinner guest by degrees down a road of humility, which we talked about last week. He explained to them that God demands humility and he will have it from all of his subjects in the kingdom. How many people want to willingly humble ourselves before God? I do. All right. What happens if we don't? God will do that for us. Right. He'll humble us. I don't want that. Jason, do you want that? You want God to humble you or you will say, hey, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. He recommended and he reminded them that if men humble themselves, that they don't need to be humbled by man or by God. He showed them how to go into a room, sit in the lowest seat. Man, no one's, you're not going to get, if you sit in the worst seat in the house, you can't get him. You can't be humbled. There's no worse place to sit, right? So he gave them some pragmatic uh, ideas here. But he explained next on, as he entered in further into his teaching, that humility can't merely be contrived or scripted. Like, I'm going to go in the room and I'm always going to sit in that low seat. So every meal, I'll get invited up to a higher seat. Like, even if you practically did what he said, he's saying it's still not real humility. Real humility is something else. And so he takes them a little further into it. And so he, it must come from a clear understanding that God is great. Not just a political strategy to keep from being embarrassed, Okay. Jesus then struck a blow at their pride by explaining that God will fill his house at the feast that he is, the kingdom, uh, with people that they are going to think don't even deserve to be there. And this is difficult, okay? It is hard. You might think it's not, but I'm telling you, it's hard for us. It is hard for us and difficult for us, and I hope we have some real difficulty in our church. 
I hope that one day there are people in our church that you look at and your flesh looks at and goes, you know, they don't deserve to be here. They really don't. These people really are some bad characters. I hope we have a few people in our church like this. You see, Jesus even talked about this in a parable one time. He said, there'll be people who, you know, they worked all day long and they get the exact same wage. But the people who slipped in right at the end and worked for an hour, they got the same price. And everybody was mad about it. Why? Why were they mad? They were mad because it wasn't right. It wasn't fair. It wasn't just. Because we love rightness and justness and fairness more than we love God and more than we love people. We're mad, but you know, when we work eight hours and the guy that comes in at the last and works for an hour gets paid the same. But everyone got the same thing, right? And what are we all going to get? We're all going to get the same thing. Our problem is, is when we work the eight hours, we're mad as though the eight hours earned us something that we've never earned. None of us have ever earned salvation, nor could we. But yet, we get to where we look down our noses at people uh, who come in who haven't lived right. You know, they might be covered in all kinds of things and they may live a certain way. God isn't like that. God is not like us. He let the Jews know that their day was over and that a new day was coming when the Jews and the Gentiles would fill the seats at the table of God's feast. That they would be shut out of blessings while what seemed to be shameful people would fill the banquet halls of the kingdom. They would not get invited to come up closer to the honored guests, but they would get sent down. And the Gentiles would get their seats. Do you think that they were missing what he was saying? No, they were not missing it. They were having it. And they were being insulted because he was at the house, everybody say, of the chief Pharisee. So the chief Pharisee got the chief seat, right? I guarantee he did. I guarantee people knew, like, he's not just one. He's the chief Pharisee. Okay, let's put him in the chief spot. So they knew that what was happening is he was telling them that their order was over. Okay, Jesus was about to drain the swamp and uh, they were scared, just like people in power today are. They're scared. They're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You know, Uh, we're supposed to get this and this is supposed to happen. Well, not working out. Here's where he does it. Luke 14. And the Lord said unto the servant, okay, this is Jesus teaching them what we talked about last week. Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them, force them in that my house might be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste my supper. You think these guys are feeling the sting of what Jesus is saying? Yeah. So now as we come to Luke 15, where our text note, note what begins to happen. It looks like Jesus gets up from the meal and he leaves the house of the Pharisee. He's right in the middle of telling this story and the people that are there at the house, the people that invited them, these honorable people that Jesus is humbling right there, Tim. You know what he does? He just gets up right in the middle and just walks out. Do you think that this had an effect of humiliating the, the people he was visiting? It absolutely did. But you see, outside where he was, there were people that they didn't get invited into the house of the Pharisee. And they're out there waiting for Jesus to come out. Maybe they're waiting for healing. Maybe they're waiting to hear the teaching. But they're gathered a crowd around outside this house. They weren't part of the meal. They're probably out there hungry, wishing they were in, smelling the food coming from the inside. And this whole picture, Jason, is a picture of the kingdom of God. All the important people are inside and they're all sitting there with the Lord. But what is he going to do? But get up and he's going to lead them and he's going to go and he's going to be near them. And now they have the honored place in the kingdom. Can you see the picture of what's going on here in Luke chapter 15? Luke 15. 
There went a great multitude with him, it says in verse 25 of 14, before we get to 15. There went a great multitude with him, and he turned and he said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life, he cannot be disciple. Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. And with these powerful words, chapter 14 ends and we come to our text. Verse 1, then drew near him all the publicans and the sinners for to hear him. So now Jesus has left the house of this righteous guy and these uh, people that you really shouldn't hang around with. These roughneck characters, these sinners, these publicans, these tax collectors, they're all around because Jesus has just blasted the important people and now he's with people that really don't deserve his attention, at least. And that day you wouldn't think he did. See how the crowd changes, they hear his word and perhaps maybe their hearts fill with hope. They're like, wow, maybe they're seeing this like, hey, someone's about to turn the tables on these guys. Someone's about to change it. The way things have been around here all the time... Maybe something's about to change. Maybe I can get in on this. These words should have indeed filled them with hope. They saw themselves as unworthy and they were right. They weren't allowed uh, into important places. They weren't allowed. They saw themselves as unworthy and they were right. But now hearing the words of Jesus, they saw God rejecting the proud, the Pharisees, those of bad reputation, those who are physically flawed. You, you talked about the word profane. You know what profane also meant? If, if you were missing, uh, if you were like, Steve, and you were missing your finger. Do you know you wouldn't be allowed in? Couldn't come in to worship the Lord. The lame couldn't come in. Blind couldn't come in. You're profane. You profane according to the righteous definition of the Old Testament. You don't bring a blind person in here. You don't bring a person who's lame in here. You're profane. You're to be outside of worship. And some of these people were fine people like you, Steve, and I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything, but you're fine people, but God had a reason under the law of showing them that, okay? And he's saying that these people, he wasn't saying these people that were necessarily living in horrible sin. These were people that just weren't allowed under the law. But you see, the people who God had come for had rejected him. He came into his own and his own what? Received him not. And so now he was going to allow in not only Gentiles, but he was going to allow the profane in. He was going to allow these blind people, these people with sicknesses, these people with difficulties. He was going to allow them in. Bad reputation, those physically flawed sinners into the kingdom. Wow. And they're like, I want in. Verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured. You know, they're watching this happen. He's leaving them. He's walking out. And so they're sitting in there. They're not, they're not following Jesus now. They murmured. Wouldn't they do that? Luke, can you imagine? It's what people do. When people get humbled before the Lord, what they do? They go, you know, those people think they're better than everybody else. You know what? I don't really think Jesus is all that he says he is. Verse 2. Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. What's wrong with this man? They didn't miss what was happening. They saw that they were being rejected like those who had picked the best seats for themselves. And now they were being asked to get up and leave and to make space for the more honored guests. Problem was, these so-called honored guests were the lowest of the low. So what did that say about them? They were lower than that. Do you see the insult? Jesus was humbling them. He was telling them to make way for the more honored guests that have just arrived. Jesus was making it clear that he was rejecting the Jews and compelling the worst of the worst to come to him. He would be there to bless them. His blessing for them, though, was an insult and a judgment on the Jews. And now he began to explain how he would gather them into the feast. 
He then begins to talk. Now, I don't think Jesus has changed his subject. I think he's still on humility. And I think that's something maybe that might be new here as we look at this uh, narrative of what goes on, that he's still teaching on the subject of humility. He spoke a parable. And many times we grab this, you know, all by itself, this, this, this narrative about the lost sheep, you know. And we take it out and it's like a narrative to, to help us. The, the, the narrative is about the fact that the sheep is lost and when they find the sheep, they're happy, okay. And that in order to get the sheep, the, the shepherd has to leave them. Do you see what's happening? He left the Pharisees, the ones that were righteous, to go outside, right? And these people are going to be allowed in the kingdom. And he's doing this. Uh, and of course, it's humbling them. But how many would like to go to heaven even if you get the worst seat in heaven? I'm totally okay with that. I'm totally okay with being the last one to make it in. And in heaven, if they say, you know what, you just barely squeaked in. I mean, I know it's not going to be like that, but, but you barely squeaked in. We, you know, you, you, you were the, of all the people that made the cut, you're the last one. I'd be like, that's fine. I probably should be that guy. All right. Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. I mean, shouldn't it have been an exciting thing that now it wasn't just that the Jews could be saved, but that the whole world... I mean, it's not like they weren't going to get in. It wasn't like it was saying that God's going to tell that the Jews aren't allowed anymore and only the Gentiles. It was that the Jews and the Gentiles, the house just got bigger. The feast just became more. It just went from exclusive to inclusive and God was going to save, seek and save that which is lost out there. This is a good thing. I say unto you that likewise, he says, joy, there shall be joy in heaven. Over one sinner that repents more than the 99 just persons which need no repentance. He was explaining to them that the new thing that God was going to do was going to be a joyous day in heaven. And he was trying to help them understand what was wrong with them. Why couldn't they enjoy the fact that the Gentiles were going to come? Why couldn't they enjoy the fact that the profane were now going to be allowed? Why couldn't they do it? Why? I can only think of one reason, and I think it's pride. Pride likes to be in the inner circle. Pride likes to be exclusive. Pride likes to get the thing. That's, that's what's why when they fundraise, they're like, if you give over a certain amount, you're going to be in our champions club. You're going to, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, I'm going to be in the champions club? So, oh, yeah. Anybody, what, what do you get? What, the champions club, you know? You'll get your name written down on a piece of something somewhere, and you'll be... It's pride. Maybe I should have a champion's club and and maybe I could raise some more money. Jesus had rejected the so-called righteous for the lost sheep of Israel. He would leave those who seemed to be fine for those who seemed to be lost. He would find them and bring them in and all of heaven would rejoice. He then tells the second thing. He says... What woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors and together rejoice. Rejoice! Everybody say, rejoice! rejoice! You see a little pattern here? 
There's something lost. It's not like I threw away all of the other coins. It's not like I killed all the other sheep. It's that the lost coin, I found it and now it's added with a number. The lost sheep, I got it and now it's included in the number. Why would you be mad that all the sheep are back in the fold? Or why would you be mad that all the coins were collected? And he says, and likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. You see, they saw themselves as those who please God. They saw themselves as the joy of heaven. Why isn't God happy that I'm here? Is it starting to sound familiar? No one ever threw me a party. I mean, really? I mean, I've just been living for, you know, I had to work for eight hours and all I got was this. They slide in at the last minute and they get in. What's, what causes this kind of heart? It happens in us. It happens in you. It happens in me. Jesus let them know that those who would seek and save, that he would seek out and save, would be the joy of heaven. You see, pride has a hard time rejoicing when good things happen to other people. They see them blessed. They see them doing something fun. They see something wonderful and they think to themselves, that should be me. Why do they get that? That's what pride does. Humility, when something good happens to somebody else, it says, well, you know, I don't really deserve it. Man, they probably do or whatever. But pride gets in us and it bothers us. It eats at us when good things happen to other people. Why? Because we think we deserve it. People of God, let it be clear to all of us today as it was made clear by Jesus to those that gathered around Him. None of us here will make it into God's kingdom by physical birth. You might be a member of this church and you might think, well, hey, I'm born and I'm with the Ratliff family and I'm here. The Jew, it wasn't guaranteed to the Jews because they were born Jews. They had to do what? They had to receive Christ. We're not going to make it by learning good behavior. I hope we're the best behaved people on earth. I hope we're the best educated people. I hope we're the cleanest living people. I hope we live a life that people look at and they go, we ought to live like that. I hope that we do. But I hope that if we do it, we don't come to love it. And to love it for the sake of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know what? I love that we adopt children. I love that we do this. But we can love that. Look at us. We adopt children. Look at us. We take in people that people don't want. Look at us. We spend our time and energy for this. And love it so much that when other people don't do it, we look at them like they're doing something less. We can love our righteousness and not love people. And our righteousness can be another stroke upon our pride that God looks at and says, I'm going to have to do something about that. How many want that? I don't want that. Our attempts at righteousness are filthy rags in the sight of God. We memorized this in the book of Philippians, did we not? How many, how many of you kids can tell me where it is? I hope you're memorizing, but I hope it comes in your mind. He said that he hopes that he can be found in Christ, not having his... Say it. Own righteousness. Everybody say, own righteousness, right? There's a problem with our righteousness. He, it's not that he doesn't want righteousness. He said, but I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. But what, but what kind of righteousness do I want? That which is by faith. That's what I want in Christ Jesus. How do we get that? And he tells us how we get it. We get it through humility, by understanding him in, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in the grievous way that he died. Right? Who can quote it? 
and not be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but which, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, right? In the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. He's saying that the road to, to good things in God and the road to the righteousness which is of faith is a road that comes through suffering. It comes through adversity and difficulty and not one that comes through living righteousness and being glad that we're righteous and being proud of our righteousness. That's the righteousness. The ugly righteousness which is of the law. If you back up a little bit in Philippians chapter 3 you'll see where he says you know what all the things that were gained to me those I count lost for Christ. I was more righteous than anybody else. I came from the very best family. I was the best taught. I had the best education. Doesn't this sound like something that could happen to us? I came from the right kind of family. And I got the right kind of education. And I got, he said, what things were gained to me, I counted for lost. Kids, you should count for lost that you were homeschooled. You should count for loss that your mother is in your home with you. You should count for loss all of these things and saying, Oh God, to whom much is given, much is required. And Lord, here I am. I may be coming to you thinking I deserve to come to you because I haven't drank and smoked and chewed and I haven't done all these bad things and all the things that, you know, that, that people in the world say are bad. I don't run around and go out to dance bars and I don't cover my body with tattoos. Oh Lord, I know that you must be so pleased with me. God is not pleased with that. He's pleased with good behavior that comes by faith, but he's not pleased with a, with a self-righteousness. We, like the Jews, are in danger of God rejecting us, humbling us, and going out among what we would call the dregs of society and calling a people from among them. I'm not saying that we, that we should not literally hunger and thirst after righteousness. We should. What I am saying is that we should understand that our salvation hasn't come to us because of it. That God's favor isn't the result of it. You see, God is kind to us in spite of the fact that we're dogs. Not because we're so clean. God's favor isn't the result of it. God is not impressed by our attempts at goodness. Yes, He is holy, it says in 1 Peter. And for this reason, we should... Try to be holy in all manner of our conversation. We should care about every word that comes out of our mouth as we strive for holy living. What Jesus is teaching here is that our sinful nature can enjoy righteous living. It's actually a lot more fun without all the consequences of sin. It's nice to be looked up to as a good person. I love it when people brag on my family and me and, and wow, what good people you are. I love it, but don't listen to it too much. It'll turn into something ugly in your home. Fathers, please don't let your kids hear it and believe it. Remind them constantly what they would be without Christ. I love the peace and beauty that comes from living a good life. All that said, all this can be used by the devil in our flesh to lead us into a false sense of righteousness. Self-righteousness, self-approval is not approval from God. I know I've been preaching for a while, but I got to keep going. Jesus kept going and he made his point so incredibly clear in what he says next. Jesus has been giving them and us lessons on humility and it seems he continues to do so. The story of the prodigal son, Jesus uses the story to show us how the kind of humility that pleases him and the pride that makes us ugly in his sight. Who wants to be ugly to God? I don't. He said there was a certain man that had two sons. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of my goods that fall to me. And he divided them and he gave it to him. Pretty simple, right? What an image in just a few words. We see a father who had two sons, the younger of the two, not the older one. He wants what's coming to him. He wants his inheritance. He does not give us a great deal, many details about this. this. That part of the story would be painful probably if we heard it. But just from we read it, does it make, take much imagination to see who is proud and who's humble in this situation? Who's proud in this situation? Everybody say, the younger son is proud. Why? Hey, Dad, I want what's coming to me. What you're going to give me when you're dead? I thought maybe there was some uh, first century rule about inheritance. I didn't know where they dealt it out. Nope. He literally is going to his dad and saying, Dad, I hope you were dead. I wish you were dead. And I want what I'm going to get when you're dead. And I want it now. This is a story that is painful. I can't imagine. I actually can't imagine having anything to leave my children. But uh, I can't imagine having something to leave my children and they want it. Now, the younger son, according to the law of Deuteronomy, he only got half what the first son got, but he still wanted it. He wanted it and he wanted it now. This must have been a grieving, painful thing. Okay? Jews at the time of Jesus followed probably similar practices uh, from Deuteronomy. At least I hope they would. Deuteronomy twenty-one seventeen. I just referenced it. There is this thing called the Mishnah that was written around this time. Uh, you can read from it. There is uh, some advice uh, among the Jewish teachers on what to do. It says in, in Ecclesiasticus, it's not the Bible, but it's part of the Mishnah. It says, to a son or wife, a brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live. Do not give your property to another lest you change your mind and must ask for it back. At the time, at the end of your days, when you are ready to die, in the hours of your death, then distribute your inheritance. This is just, you know, wisdom of the day by the Jewish leaders. This is not the Bible, okay? But we can, we can infer from this that there wasn't some special thing where people just, you know, uh, their kid reached a certain age and he just gave him money. This was not. It was just like it was now. Paul mentions a couple of inheritance laws and the customs uh, in Galatians 3. He says that a man's will has been ratified. No one can annul it or add to it. Galatians 4, he explains that a child who's a minor is under guardians and trustees until a date set by the father. When he arrives at that, the son becomes an heir. In the, in the culture of the day, a father had complete control over his property during his life. And not only do that, but it would be a horrible shame, Luke, if you, you know, you had, you had built something, you know, you had acres or whatever, and your son asked for it. If that was a rare thing, but if he did, and then he sold it, it was like twice the insult. Because what he was saying to you was, I don't care what you've worked for. I don't care what you're building, Dad. I just want the cash. And then move away. And he did something so humiliating to his father. But it sounds like that you really couldn't humiliate this man because he was already humble. He already was humble. I was telling the guys up front, I didn't like this. And I'm, I, you know, I was ready to explain to you that every analogy here is not perfect with God because, you know, I don't know that God would let somebody do this, right? I mean, would God just, you know, encourage us to give our children money and send them out and let them do whatever they want and, and then wait for them and look for them, you know? And then I remembered that God's already given us our inheritance. 
when He saves us, Jonathan, it's ours right now. The Bible says that He's prepared for us a place in heaven, that He that, that, that he's already has this inheritance we read in 1 Peter. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away. We already have it. Now the question is, is do we take it and go out and live like this man did? This man was proud, and it's what we can do in our pride. We can say, hey, we're saved. We can live however we want. I hope not. Now, there was some historical accounts where young sons would do this, and the older son would step in and say, hey, you know what? I'll give you what I have as a way to help the father save face. But you know, this, younger, this older son, he wasn't. He wasn't humble. He didn't help his dad. He just let it go. He said nothing. At least it doesn't record that he said anything. The father showed the humility here in the story. Not only did he do this, he took, sold it, and left town. In the Mishnah, it says, if one assigns in writing his estate to his son to become heir after his death, the father cannot sell it since it's conveyed to his son, and the son cannot sell it because it's under the father's control while he yet lives. See how he's going against what was commonly done in their time? Even if the father decided to divide it up, he couldn't sell it, but this boy did. (laughs) So how many are a real fan of this kid? This spoiled kid, this kid who gets his money who insults his family, who, you know, embarrasses him in the community. It's a bad guy. It's a bad guy before he ever goes out and lives ungodly, right? Verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered together, took a journey, went to a far country there, wasted his substance among riotous living. How humiliating. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. He began to be in one, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent to him into his fields to feed his swine. He would have fain filled his belly with the husk of the swine that he ate, but no man gave unto him. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to eat, and I perish in hunger? I will arise and go to my father's house and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me one of thy hired servants. What has happened to this proud, riotous, disrespectful, nasty boy? Everybody say, he's been humbled by God. You know, we may live through this. Some of us may live to see our children do this. And if they belong to God, let me tell you what's going to happen. God will humble them. I hope we're waiting on the porch looking. If that's what happens. I hope we have the humility that this man had when it happens. Because that's what Jesus is teaching. He is teaching us about repentance. He is teaching us about the humility. But he's showing us that this humility was imposed on this boy. So what if he had gone and he had made investments and become even more rich? Do you think this story would have the same ending? No. He never come back home. But this wasn't just any. This was this man's son. Just like we are. And God is faithful to humble us in our arrogance, in our pride. And bring us to a place where we come back to Him. And what humility looks like when we come in repentance for our sin. Humility doesn't say, now where's my seat? I'm your son. 
I'm better than these guys. Humility comes and say, I don't deserve to be called your son. I don't even deserve to be one of the, your hired servants. But if you'll let me, I'll come because I have nothing. That's what humility looks like when people sin in our congregation. When their humility doesn't look like that. You wonder, is it humility at all? I, that's not what humility... Humility doesn't say, I really ought to have a pretty good seat around here, right? There's humility in repentance, and it is a self... I mean, the, thing, the dumb things we do are humiliating enough, but when it comes right down to it, the way we come back to the Father is we come in humility. And does God say, and does the Father make say, yeah, you know what, you ought to be humble. And do mean things to him. No, he doesn't. You see, this is a picture of a humble father and two proud sons. He arose, he came to his father, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The humility of this father was great, his love was greater than his sense of righteousness. You hear that? His love was greater than his sense of righteousness. You wasted all my money. You had humiliated the family. You did us wrong. What is wrong with you? No, I'm not receiving you back. You're dead to me. He could have said all of that and been well within his rights. But his love was greater than his sense of righteousness. His son could never make right what he had done to him and to his family. And he wouldn't make him try. You can't make people pay for their sins. Jesus did that. But the boy was willing to try. Do you understand the difference? That's what humility is. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. He wasn't worthy in the first place. And neither were you, and neither was I. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes and feet and bring him to the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry for my son, which was dead is alive again. He is lost and he's found and they begin to make merry. He's calling them back to the teaching about the coin. He's calling them back to the teaching about the lost sheep and he's showing them what you do. This is what I'm talking about. Jesus says, I'm saying when he comes in, everybody's excited and rejoices, but not you. Jesus is humbling these guys while he's with the Pharisees when he begins to tell them about the boy at home. His elder son was in the field. He came nigh into the house. He heard the music and the dancing and he called the servants and said, What is this? Thy brother's home. Thy father killed the fatted calf because he received him safe and sound and he was angry and he would not... Go in, therefore came his father out and entreated him. Proud son, humble father. He said, Father, lo, these many years have I served thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Who wants to be that guy? And the deal is, we're in danger of being that guy when we love our own righteousness. We are in danger of being that guy, and we are that guy all the time. As soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured the living with harlots, you kill him a fatted calf. He's living ungodly. He's naming sins that weren't even mentioned in the story. He knew a little intel on his brother's sin. 
you know he's devoured it all with a bunch of lewd women? The father is not shaken by this. He figures as much. Son, the man says, you are ever with me and all that I have is thine. I mean, I'm telling you, if my son said this about another one, I'd be pretty mad about it. Here I am, the father, right? Is he the dad? No, but this day, he's, he, the boy is not willing to forgive and he ain't coming to the party. Everything I have is always yours, son. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for thy brother was dead, is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. See this lesson in humility. Where do we see it? We see it in the Father. May we learn from the example of the prodigal son to keep the eyes on the humility of the Father and to keep our eyes on the pride of the Son and pray and ask God to teach us through His Word and by His Spirit not to allow us to live in that kind of pride, but that we would always come to God in humility and come to others. And when God brings the lost sheep home, may we rejoice as heaven will rejoice anyway without us. I want to be one of the rejoicers of heaven, don't you? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I know we've covered a lot of territory here, but these, as you know, as you taught them, were meant to be understood as a whole. And Lord, I think we can use a thousand calls to humility, Lord. I pray, Lord, for us all, Lord, that we would not love righteousness as much as we love people. That we would indeed hunger and thirst after it, O God. But that we would not see it as a road to your approval or the reason for our salvation, but a gift to us that we don't deserve. Help us, O Lord God, to love people. To not try to make them pay for the sins they can't pay for just like we could never pay for ours give us joy because the humble is a rejoicing person they can rejoice for others even when they see good things happening to them and not themselves in christ's name we pray and all the church said amen Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.